The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Well, if you would join me in turning in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, we continue to worship God by hearing from His Word. We've been going through Hebrews together as a church, and we are in Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. We're looking at verses 1 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, let's now give our full attention to God speaking to us in His Word. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This concludes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to it. Well, perhaps the most famous homeless man in history was an Iranian man named Muran Karimi Nasseri. Now, I have no idea if I pronounced that right, but here, here's, a, here's a secret. Uh, anytime you're reading uh, someone's name or some sort of name from the Bible, just sound confident, because nobody else knows how to pronounce it either. But he had a, a mother whom he had never met, who lived in Britain. So he's in Iran, he has his mother he's never met, who's in Britain. And so at the age of 43, he set out to go visit her. However, because of some issues with his documentation, he got stuck at the airport in France, his connecting flight. And how long did he get stuck at that airport in France? 18 years. It's a true story. Actually, the the movie The Terminal that stars Tom Hanks is loosely based on this. Uh, For whatever reason, the Iranian government had stripped him of his uh, passport rights. And for whatever reason, he was able to fly out of Iran into France, but could not return back to Iran and could not continue his flight uh, to Britain. So he got stuck at the airport in France. And if he stepped foot outside the airport in France, he would be in the country illegally. 
So he had this legal nightmare to deal with. And he finally got the documentations 18 years later. He was there from 1988 to 2006. Uh, but he still refused to sign them for uh, whatever reason in protest. And he continued to live there at the airport until the French government finally just gave him refugee status and kicked him out of the airport. And after living in some hotels for a while, he actually returned to that airport to live there and died there, I think, just last year or in 2022. But here's a really sad case of somebody who did not arrive at their destination and died in the middle uh, along the way. But we have a much worse case uh, with this one generation of Israel. Uh, they didn't get stuck at an airport terminal. They got stuck in a desert wilderness in which they died. They never arrived at their destination. This is a sad case of missing one's uh, destination. They did not arrive at the promised land. One thing to not arrive at Britain, it's quite another to not arrive at the promised land. And the documentation they didn't have, if you will, that prevented them from arriving at that destination is faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, faith in believing God's promises. And the author of Hebrews has spent chapters 3 and now into chapter 4 bringing up Israel's wilderness experience to say, don't let that happen to you. Don't end up missing the destination of eternal rest by being stuck in this world. Missing out on the promised land. And much worse than dying in an airport terminal or the wilderness is dying in your sins. Don't miss out. Make sure there are none among us who fail to have the proper documentation that is faith in Christ. So that no one falls short of reaching that destination. God's rest. And so we're going to look at two considerations for not missing the destination. The first is the good news. And uh, the second is the promised rest. So before we dive in, you may be wondering, okay, how can a Christian miss out on the destination of heaven? Well, the answer is that no Christian can. No Christian is going to miss out on the destination of heaven. The issue is that among a group of professing Christians, those who have made a profession of faith in Christ, those among us in a church body, members of a church, among them, there might be some who are not believing. There might be some found to not have faith in Christ. And so the author of Hebrews is addressing that entire community, the entire community of professing believers, genuine believers and unbelievers alike. This warning for believers is used as a means by God to keep them turning from themselves and reliance on themselves and to reliance on Christ. This warning for unbelievers among us is used by God to awaken them, to cause them to see the greatness of their sin and misery, their unbelief, and the severe warning of what happens if one does not believe in Christ. 
There are the worst types of consequences for not believing in Christ. It's eternity in hell away from the presence of God. So the Hebrew writer is saying, even though you hear the Word of God, even though you attend the assembly of God's people, make sure that you and also those among us are trusting in Christ. So the first consideration is the good news. Uh, Verse 1 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So we begin another uh, passage with therefore, making a connection with the previous passage. And the previous passage, in that the author spoke of a generation of Israelites who did not arrive at the promised land, who did not enter God's rest because of unbelief. And uh, the author has been using Psalm 95 to back this up. He's quoted it many times. He quotes it again in our passage. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like those unbelieving Israelites who failed to enter God's rest. Well, he continues the same train of thought here and now turns to warn us not to follow Israel's bad example. He says that while the promise of entering God's rest still stands, we should fear lest any of us may seem to have fallen short of it. And the author actually commands us to fear here. Now, the kind of fear being called for here is not doubting your salvation or lacking assurance or the joy of your salvation. Some of the preachers we may have heard over the past few years or decade or so uh, sometimes give the impression that it's a bad thing to have assurance of salvation. It's a presumptuous thing. There's a lot of phony believers out there And so you need to doubt so that you're not one of them. And that's not what the author of Hebrews is calling for here. Because this actually leads to a slavish fear, a relying on your obedience for confidence and stand before God. I can only have assurance so long as I produce better obedience. And it's actually unbelief because it doubts Christ's ability to save sinners. Where we end up saying... I'm just too much of a sinner for Christ to save. If I can get myself more savable, then maybe I can be saved by Christ. We come to Christ as we are in our sin. We say, oh Lord, have mercy on me. And the Lord is merciful. He will show mercy. This pertains to not believing that. Not believing that He's merciful. Not believing his promises. The fear here pertains to anyone among us who seems to have fallen short. And notice that this is not merely self-reflective. But it involves our whole church community. It says here, to, to bring out the Greek, let us fear lest there should be any out of you or from among you. Not just you, but from among all of us who seems to have fallen short, who seems to be unbelieving and therefore not entering God's rest. Now, this is not a harsh, judgmental, or critical spirit where we're constantly examining people to see if they're measuring up, 
love, beloved, calls us to believe all things. Not to be naive about everything, but to believe all things. Uh, That is, not coming at it with an approach of a critical evil suspicion, but rather believing the best about somebody. And so we believe their profession of faith to be genuine until there is evidence to the contrary. And evidence evidence to the contrary is disobedience. Uh, We saw the parallel last week, from last week's passage, between uh, disobedience and disbelief. Disobedience is a fruit of disbelief, of unbelief. Uh, Disobedience to God flows out of unbelief. This is how you see unbelief. Now, this is not a struggle with sin or having sin present in one's life, that's going to be all of us until the day we die, no matter what level of maturity uh, we are in. Rather, this kind of disobedience is in an unwillingness to obey God. It's an indifference towards God. There's no affections for Him, uh, even though they may be able to articulate the truth and articulate it accurately. And it's a a life that's not ordered by God's Word. This is a self-righteous Pharisee. Or it's a self-indulgent worldling. It's going off into the world, living in sin, hiding in sin, having a life characterized by the deeds of the flesh. As Paul talks about in Galatians 5, the deeds of the flesh are evidence. And those who are characterized by this will not enter the, the, the kingdom of heaven, will fail to enter God's rest. It's evidence of unbelief. This should cause us to fear for that person and ourselves if this describes us. Coming short of the destination of God's rest means they go to the other eternal destination, which is hell. If that is not... Uh, just a very long time. It's not a mere million years or billion years. Once you're there, that's it. That's it. And so this should cause us to fear for that person. Not fear that person. Not fear offending that person or losing a good relationship with that person. It should cause us to fear for their soul's sake. Out of love, exhort them to believe in Christ, pointing out our concerns for them. And again, this is not this harsh, critical judgment, we believe all things. But if there seems to be, based on a disobedient life, they are unbelieving. The loving thing to do is to point them to Christ. Is to point that out. Of course, this needs to be done with gentleness, love, and respect. But we should fear if any among us seems to be unbelieving. Now, in order to back up what he has been saying, the author of Hebrews needs to prove the similarities between us and Israel. This is because he has been using Israel in the wilderness as an example for us and a warning to us. And there there are two main ties between us and Israel in the wilderness. Uh, The first is that we too have heard heard good news. This is in verses 2 and 3. The second is that we too are offered to enter God's rest. This is uh, verses 3 through 10. 
the rest of the passage we're looking at. So first, we like Israel have heard good news. It says in verse 2, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the first way in which our situation is like Israel, this generation in the wilderness, is that we have heard good news as they have heard good news. Scripture here is affirming that they heard the good news. They heard the gospel. How did they hear the gospel? Well, from the beginning, they were expecting a seed of the woman to come to deliver them from Satan and the curse. It's Genesis 3.15. And keep in mind, this is the days before there was uh, written scripture. These things were passed on orally. But they believed these things. And, and that, that generation in Exodus called out to, to Yahweh. They must have heard of him uh, when they were in Egypt. Uh, they heard how Abraham was promised that the seed would come through, the, through his line. They heard God declare to them in Exodus 6 through Moses, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. While their deliverance was a physical type of our spiritual deliverance, a spiritual deliverance that was to come, and their rest was a physical type of a spiritual rest, Nevertheless, they heard that God alone would freely deliver them from their slavery, from their enemies, called their redemption for the purpose of dwelling with God, finding rest with God in this land of promise. They saw God deliver them by the blood of a Passover lamb. And God said, I'm going to bring judgment but you're going to be saved from my judgment. You're going to be protected from my judgment. How? Not when I see you're being good. Not when I see that you're being really devoted to me. But here's how you're going to be protected. Here's how you're going to be kept safe. You're going to take a lamb, and you're going to slaughter it. And you're going to put the blood on the doorpost of your house, on the wood of your doorpost. And when you do that, when I see, not that you're being faithful, but when I see the blood and that alone, I will pass over you with my judgment. So he's giving them this, these vivid pictures of the gospel. Oh, we're going to be saved by the blood of a Passover lamb. Yes, types and shadows, but nevertheless pictures of the gospel and how they would be saved. And then when they had their backs against the sea, and the Egyptians were bearing down on them. And they cried out saying, we're just going to die. God said to them, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, 
which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. and You have only to be silent. Be still. I will do all for you what you cannot do for yourself. Salvation is all the work of, a, of the Lord. And you to stand still. Really clear pictures of salvation. Really clear pictures of the gospel. They saw the salvation of the Lord. They saw it was all from Him. They saw God rain down bread from heaven to feed them. They saw water come out of the rock. And the rock was Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. Where they grumbled against God. They grumbled against their leaders. They demonstrated their unbelief. And rather than God striking them with the judgment that they so deserved for their hard heart and unbelief, the rock is struck and water flows out to them. Wonderful pictures of the Gospel. Wonderful pictures of who God is. A God merciful and gracious. A God eager to forgive. A God who does forgive. After they were at the foot of the mountain at Mount Sinai and said, oh yes, we will keep the law as if they really could. And they broke it while the, the covenant documents were in the mail, as it were, while it was on its way, while Moses was up on top of the mountain. Rather than them all getting destroyed, God had a mediator stand before them. And that mediator said, I will take the punishment. And God said, you can't take the punishment. But nevertheless, because their mediator interceded for them, they received forgiveness and God renewed His covenant. Again and again and again, God is portraying these pictures of the wonderful salvation, redemption that we have in Christ. These things were declared to them. These things were experienced by them. These things were seen by them. They saw the high priest who, when they sinned, would take that sacrifice. God says, when you sin, you need to take the sacrifice. And they saw that blade come across its throat and blood squirt out. Vivid pictures. Oh, this is what happens when I sin. And then that blood is sprinkled in the presence of God. Oh, this is the way back into the presence of God. A sacrifice in my place offered up by the high priest. Yes, there, these were types and shadows. and They didn't have all the information. They didn't know the time and exact person of the Christ that it would be Jesus of Nazareth. We have clearer revelation, but they had the revelation. They had the proclamation of these things. They heard good news. In types and shadows. Nevertheless, they heard it. But they did not believe. They failed to enter God's rest because they did not believe. They did not see God's goodness and character in these things. His willingness and ability to fulfill for them all the promises. The good promises, which God says, I will do for you. Yet they fail to 
to believe, and therefore they did not enter God's rest. Because they did not believe that good news which is proclaimed to them. And the author of Hebrews is saying, Church, you hear the good news. We hear the good news, don't we? We hear the gospel. Believe it. Trust it. Receive it. Don't take it for granted. Hear the good news. Make sure that there are none of us who are unbelieving like the Israelites and therefore fail to enter God's rest. As he goes on to say in verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It is not those who, or it is those who believe who enter God's rest. It is not those who do not believe who enter, as he says here in the quote from Psalm 95, they, the unbelieving generation, shall not enter my rest. Now this brings up a question. What is the rest that we who believe enter? And it's, is it still held out to us? And that is what he seeks to prove in the rest of this passage here. And this brings us to the second consideration for not missing the destination. And that is this promised rest. The author is going to talk about two rests mentioned in Scripture. God's rest at the beginning of creation and then the land of Canaan. God's rest at the beginning of creation is still held out to us. The rest of Canaan was a type and a shadow. And he discusses both of these in order to answer the logical question, why does there remain a rest for the people of God to enter today if these rests are past? So he begins with God's rest at the beginning of creation, the end of verse 3. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, these works are not God's works absolutely. Uh, John 5.17 says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Rather, he is referring specifically to the work of creation. This is evident by what he goes on to say in verse 4. For he, who has, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So this is referring to God's work of creation that he finished in six days and rested on the seventh. Uh, when God finished his work, he rested. This is God's rest. Now this does not mean that God got weary or tired or ran low on strength, diminished in strength, and therefore needed to replenish his strength like creatures do. Rather, this is referring to God finishing his work of creation and honoring his work by setting aside a day in recognition of it where there was no work of creation being done. And man was to enter this rest with God once he imaged God, followed God in working, completing his work, finishing his work, and then entering into God's rest. And of course, we know the rest of the story. Man failed to enter that rest. But why does he bring this up? Why does the author of Hebrews bring this up? Well, the author of Hebrews is saying that even though God established his rest at the very beginning, his works were finished from the foundation of creation, the, the, the end of the sixth day, it still remains for us to enter into even today. 
even though it was so long ago, it is not expired. The time has not run out. God still intended to bring his people into his rest. So then, what about Israel's rest in the land of Canaan? Well, God gave this as a type and shadow, a physical picture, one big historical sermon illustration, if you will. The land of Canaan was was a type of the heavenly rest that God promised. However, the Israelites in the wilderness failed to enter that rest because of unbelief, which serves as a warning for future generations about how we fail to enter God's rest. The same thing through unbelief. And instructive for how we do enter it. By simply believing the good news. However, what Adam and Israel failed to do, the last Adam and true Israel, Jesus Christ, has achieved. As the end of the chapter says, Christ has entered that rest as a forerunner for us. He achieved it by His perfect work and suffering. And we enter simply by relying on His work. Trusting Him. Believing that He did it all for us. You follow the train of thought in Hebrews 4. There's this warning, don't fail to enter, don't fail to enter, right? What's the solution? Read the end of Hebrews 4. Because we have a great high priest who has entered that rest. Go to him for grace and mercy. I'm getting ahead of myself, but we'll get there. But this is why Psalm 95 still speaks of a rest to enter. This is why the author goes on to say in verses 6 through 7. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So Psalm 95, which speaks about not hardening your heart, not being unbelieving, so that you do not fail to enter God's rest, was spoken by King David long after God finished his work of creation, long after God's rest was established on the seventh day. This means that it remains for some to enter this rest, if he's still speaking about this. In these days, today, it still remains for us to enter. Has it expired? The only way that any of us would be barred is through unbelief following Israel's bad example of not believing. And so the warning still applies to us today. Don't harden your heart. Don't be unbelieving. If you hear His voice, you hear this good news, don't miss your destination. Eternal rest with God. However, this brings up another question. I've already addressed it some, but addressing it again, the land of Canaan, Israel, was their promised rest. God said they failed to enter God's rest, which was the land of Canaan. However, the next generation entered it. Joshua, Moses' successor, led them into the land of Canaan. But when David wrote Psalm 95, where is he writing from? Israel. The rest. The promised rest. He is writing it while in that promised land, Israel, in their promised rest. 
And while in the land of rest, David writes, don't harden your hearts so that you fail to enter God's rest. Uh, That would be like me saying to you all right now in this room, make sure you're on time today so that you don't fail to enter into the sanctuary. Why are you telling me that? I'm already here. David, in the land of rest, is saying, don't fail to enter his rest. So why is David saying, while in the land of rest, don't fail to enter his rest when they're already in it? And this isn't this is the implied question that the author's answering to show why there still remains a rest for God's people to answer. And so he says in verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. God says in Joshua 21 that God gave them rest. All the promises uh, were, were answered. Not one word of God's good word failed. However, centuries later in Psalm 95, when they're in that rest, he speaks of another and warns don't fail to enter into it. And the logical conclusion that we draw is that the land of Canaan was not the ultimate rest that God had in mind. That's the conclusion that the author of Hebrews is drawing. If Joshua would have given them this rest, he would not have spoken of another day. Rather, as with the other aspects of the Old Covenant, it was a type and shadow of the, thing, of the good things to come, as Hebrews 9 says. This is why David, while in the land of rest, speaks of another one. The rest that we are to not miss out on through unbelief is not the land of Canaan, not Israel, not the earthly Jerusalem. Rather, it is, as Hebrews 12 says, the heavenly Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that is to come. The Jerusalem above, as Paul says in Galatians 4. The author of Hebrews is not saying to his Jewish audience, expect someday to receive the land of Israel. Rather, he is saying, that is not the rest that God has promised. It's a greater rest. It's a heavenly rest. It's the rest that Hebrews 12 speaks of. This is why Psalm 95 speaks of another rest while they're already in the land of Canaan. It's not the rest that Joshua gave. It's the rest that a greater Joshua, Jesus, gives. This is the rest held out to us. And that is why there still remains a rest for the people of God. Verse 9, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is the point he has been seeking to prove. God's rest is not something in the past, but remains for us today. There still remains that rest to enter from the very beginning of creation. And it is also something that believers have already entered into. You see that in verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest, for whoever has entered God's rest, has also rested from his works as God did from his. Notice again, it says, for whoever has entered God's rest. Something that's passed. Now this brings to the question, is this speaking about the, the present or the future? And as I always like to answer, yes. The, the rest is a spiritual rest that begins in this life and is culminated in the life to come. 
comes to its fullest expression in heaven, but we experience it now. And Jesus has already entered that rest as a forerunner for us, and we, by virtue of being united to him, have entered into that. This is why Hebrews or uh, Ephesians 2 6 says that we were raised with Christ and seated, seated, not will be seated, but seated with him in the heavenly places. Physically, bodily, we're not there. But because of our union with Christ, we are, in a sense. We also see this by what Hebrews 12 says, that we have already come to Mount Zion. We have already come, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly land, and the heavenly rest. And while we are not physically there yet, we are citizens of that heavenly kingdom. And we get a taste of it now in this life. In fact, you see that word for Sabbath rest in verse 9, where it says, while uh, there, there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people, it literally means Sabbath observance. Observing the Sabbath. That remains for God's people today. There still remains a Sabbath observance for God's people setting aside a day from this world for rest and worship to be distinctly focused on uh, the Lord. Remember that entering God's rest, God's rest was signified by setting aside a day you know, all the way from the beginning of creation. In, in our day, it, the day has changed to the first day of the week. And the reason for that is because whereas before you had to first work and finish your work in order to enter that rest. And so this was signified by working first and then the last day of the week being a rest. Now today, because Christ has finished that work, we first rest and then from that rest enter into our work. That's why this rest is now on the first day of the week. To show that pattern of first we come to Christ for rest. And then from that rest we take upon that yoke. The Sabbath of servants that remains is a sign of this entering God's rest. And it's for us to have entered God's rest. But our rest is founded on Christ. We find rest in Him. This is how we enter God's rest. This is how we have entered that rest. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, remember the words that Jesus called out? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. I will give you that rest that your soul is longing for, that you've been trying to work for. This is our natural state, heavy laden, laboring, laboring to try to get to that rest. And Jesus says, stop, come to me. I will give you that rest. Jesus calls out the people like this who are laboring or heavy laden, you who are trying to work for your rest, you who have been under the heavy burden of the covenant of works, as a sinner trying to produce enough righteousness to have a right standing with God, trying to be acceptable to God by your works, trying to find peace and rest in your soul through your works, Jesus says, instead, come to me. Simply come without your works, without merits, bringing me nothing. Just come. 
I will give you rest for free apart from any works of your own. I will take care of everything for you. I will provide you with all the righteousness you need to stand before God. A perfect righteousness that I will give you credit for. My obedience to the law. You get credit for and I will give it to you for free. I obeyed the law for you. Simply trust my law keeping in your place and rest in that. I will take care of the penalty of your sin, past, present, and future. You do not need to bear your sin anymore. You do not need to take care of your sins. You do not need to work to accrue righteousness or make up for any of your sins, making it right. I will do it all for you. I will take care of this all for you, freely and forever. You do not need to worry about it. Trust me. I will do all for you what you cannot do for yourself. Fear not. Stand back and see the salvation of the Lord, which I will work for you. You have only to be still and silent. And I will give you my life to be in you by my Spirit so that you have power to fight sin, so that you are no longer a slave to sin. And when you fail, and when you fall, and when you lose a battle, I will advocate for you. I will use my high position in heaven to always intercede for you. And also fear not, because I am the one who sanctifies you. Hebrews 2.11 I who began a good work in you, I will be the one who will complete it. Come to me. Find rest in me. Oh, and I will bring you, my son, to glory. This, beloved, is how we find rest in the Lord. It's by believing this that we enter God's rest. Trusting Him to bring us to that destination. And we experience this rest now for our souls. Oh, peace and joy, having a cleansed conscience, knowing that, that our sins are not imputed to us. That we bear our guilt no more. That we are forgiven by God, loved by Him. Being brought to that heavenly destination. We have the joy and delight of knowing God, even though it's dim and through a glass and so obscured by some sin. Yet this is the rest in heaven. Freedom from sin. Freedom from sin's curse. Freedom to enjoy God. Freedom from the greatness of our sin and misery. We experience that in part now. But fully when we get there. We get a taste of that now in this life. But the fullest enjoyment is in the life to come. And it is all because of Christ. Who is our rest. Who is our life. And who alone secures and brings us into God's eternal rest. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this rest that we find in Christ. Oh, Father, may all of us in here be believing. Resting on and receiving Christ alone for justification sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of your wonderful covenant of grace. We ask this in Christ's name.
Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.